Welcome. This is News of the World, the place where you get to the news that's really important and that the world is talking about. And here's our first news item. Yesterday, Uruguay is beating England 2-1. Uh, oh, wait, no. We're actually about the boring news, the stuff that probably matters, but nobody cares because it's World Cup. <laughs> yes, Mark. Wait, uh, can you tell me how Belgium is doing? Oh, no, Belgium uh, is doing fine <laughs> so far. It's just one game, uh, still oh. another two to go, but they'll oh, probably make goodness. it. Yes, yes, yes. Oh. Well, we could talk about football all the time. No. Uh, no. Obviously, the world is talking about football, and this is a good time for all kinds of dictators and other political loonies <laughs> to get through with their agenda, because nobody cares, nobody notices anything. Yeah. That's how the world works. Yes. yes. This one is entitled "While You Were Sleeping." Uh, <laughs> uh, you're right. Dreaming. It is a great time. While you were dreaming yeah. of the World Cup. Yeah, yeah that's it. So, are you but, following the event? Uh, the event itself, not too much. But I do look at the scores at the end of the day just to see who beat who, and uh, I, I'm I really enjoy experiencing it after it happens. <laughs> yeah, Basically, well, I don't watch any shows. Also, uh, Germany folded uh, <laughs> folded no, no. Portugal into tiny yes, yes, yes. packets, and yes, so maybe yes. that's not that interesting to you anymore. Anyway, uh, well, Holland maybe, is doing maybe. fine. <laughs> well, yeah, but there's something about being in the place that's winning. I, I just want everyone here to be unhappy. So, oh really? Um, I, yeah, yeah. I love when they're unhappy with their football team because you know why? Because everybody gets very proud when the team wins, as if they did something. Uh, this bores me. I'm much more of a fan of everybody's unhappy because a group of men didn't put a ball in a basket or whatever it is. Uh, I, I enjoy that a lot more than, than everybody feels like they're champions because of what their team did. So right now over here, probably like over there, everybody's feeling real proud of themselves and they haven't done anything. <laughs> oh, yes, Sorry. they have. Oh. I, they, think, <laughs> I, I think it's still a combined effort. And actually, Germany is so good in, 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 in having a bad mood. They yeah. really enjoy it if they are happy. Ah. Well, it's good. But uh, my other World Cup tip, since we're on World Cup tips, is, and you've known this for, for years and years, but still it's worth mentioning, I love going to the supermarket, strolling the streets, and doing things while the World Cup is going on, especially while <laughs> the Netherlands is playing. I can really, I'm the first one in line. There are no lines. It's fantastic. The, the city is mine during a game. Like, it's great. Yeah, yeah that's okay. true. So I recommend that, especially those of you in Europa, although I guess it would work in, in South America too. Just just go out and do things during the game. You'll find you're first in line. Yeah, but uh, the riots in Brazil, I mean, is nobody reporting on it or did it actually stop happening? Uh, well, uh, they, they've collectively just stopped in honor of the World Cup to watch the game. Oh, really? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, I, there were some major strikes uh, that w went off at the beginning of the World Cup. Uh, transport workers, I think in Sao Paulo or Rio. Uh, so there are a lot of little things. Well, they're not little, but there are a lot of things happening uh, that aren't pro football or, or football directly related. Um, but yeah, they've become completely silenced. Actually, I saw a whole section, and, and we're going to have an item from uh, that section in uh, on the Global Post about things that are happening in South America beyond football that you didn't notice. Oh, wow. Yeah. 
um, and I actually, yeah, we'll, 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 that'll be our number two item. Uh, I wanted to start today actually in a place where the mainstream media is also focused, but, but it, it, I mean, it is just a major going on. I'm talking about Iraq, uh, and I'm sure you've seen some items on this, Tim, in the last week at least. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, it's it's been a long time coming at this point. It's not like they just appeared this week. Uh, but here we have this uh, group of uh, militants, ISIS, very fancy name. My, my friend's daughter is named ISIS. She's very cute. These guys aren't. Uh, they're a, a militant <laughs> radical group linked to Al-Qaeda in some way. Uh, and they're taking cities or at least they've taken mosul which is a major city and we, we actually mark we actually reported on them taking Fallujah first yeah uh, a, a while ago when nobody really uh, noticed and there was some fighting uh on this but what i didn't realize is that they are still holding the city and now they are extending it to the rest of the iraq yeah there's a phone going off really Uh-oh. Well, if you can't hear it, that's great. That's probably the uh, president calling, right? Exactly. What Asking should we do? Asking for advice. Yeah. Oh, interestingly, uh, one of the things that's happened with this conflict is, besides the United States now getting involved, that's the big news item these past two days, and they're only getting involved by sending uh, 300 advisors. This is always the code name, by the way, for soldiers, right? In <laughs> Vietnam, the U.S. Send a, sent a whole bunch of advisors. After a while, there were thousands upon thousands of advisors Uh, in, in South Vietnam. Well, now the U.S. <laughs> is sending 300 advisors Oh, really? Well, you better yes. behave or I'll send my advisors. Yes, exactly. Yeah. These <laughs> advisors have big guns and uh, uniforms and so forth. But that's not the only thing. Iran has also sent uh, the head of its, um, one of its top generals, the same guy who has been active uh, advising Syria on what to do against uh, the rebel uprising, the same guy who has negotiated to, to get Hezbollah involved in that same conflict. He's now working uh, with the government in Baghdad to figure out a strategy. And this is actually interesting. This puts Iran on the same side as the U.S. And actually, it's not the first time in the last 10 years. It's something that you're not often going to hear about in the media, not like put together. They'll be in separate paragraphs uh, in an article. But it's that Iran and the U.S. are collaborating, and they have collaborated before. Uh, I'm thinking of Afghanistan uh, at the beginning of that conflict. Uh, so here we have this, this shadowy, legendary figure in the Iranian military taking action, Uh, at least strategy-wise. And you also have the advisors, the aerial support, not bombings. That's something I expected at this point, that they would just, the U.S. would just say, okay, we'll, we'll be your air support. But the U.S. is so far refusing to do that. It's probably too expensive, to be honest. Uh, it's always about money. But uh, yeah, they are providing also, it, intelligence. It would also mean that are, they are involved in another war. I mean, uh, I yeah. think it's just the message, not so much the capacity uh, here. Yeah. And uh, although they try to avoid uh, extra costs, of course, they have a, a real interest in any kind of stability. But, yeah, well, this whole political, well, could, I'm not sure if you even could call it uh, a political process that has been going on in that area in the last 10 years. You know, it was yeah. basically just a mess. But, you know, it seems as if all those decisions from starting this war in the first place and how to deal with it after the war and also how to withdraw from the area has failed completely. 
where we are looking more than more, uh, more than just a failed state because this is now a, a complete chain of failed state areas from yeah. Syria to Iraq where well, we could debate about Iran it's a different <laughs> story but then Pakistan Afghanistan it's it's a whole part of the world now that is destabilized and um, in a way which makes it even more difficult to to deal with it because now i mean <laughs> ten years ago you at least had you know you knew who your enemies were hmm. you know who well, was in control and now you don't even know who is in control anymore well as as many people have probably read the issue one of the main issues uh that sets this group uh, in motion against the Iraqi government is the treatment and basically the, the favoring of the majority who are Shia in, in Iraq and this whole aspect of the Sunni minority. Saddam Hussein was a Sunni and then in those days the Sunni minority kind of ruled Iraq, uh, oddly enough. And so Iran uh, being a Shia nation is also trying to help the Shia government of Iraq. Well, the big criticism of this prime minister, al-Maliki, is that he uh, he favors the majority and ignores the needs of the minority, the, the cries of the minorities here, uh, specifically the, the, the Sunnis. And so he's described as a figure that's been dividing the nation. And uh, the, in the middle of all this discussion of how to manage the conflict, even the U.S. is saying... This is a bad prime minister. You should you should step down, which is kind of weird because you know in a conflict the chances of a leader stepping down are are minimum. I mean, he's just trying to figure out how to keep this thing under control. It's unlikely he's gonna, if ever, but especially now, say, "Oh, okay, I I resign. I haven't done a good job." Yeah. Um, so th there's these all these weird discussions, mostly coming from the U.S. saying this is not the right guy. It's like uh, right guy or not, look what's happening. Like, yeah. <laughs> unlikely to, to step down but so there's this whole question of minority rights and the kurds of course as we know it's well documented have separated themselves and there's a lot of articles coming out about how they're defending themselves against these militants they're protecting their areas uh so there we go you know another breaking down of what was the state of iraq into a bunch of different places many of them not secure and then this one that has its own military and uh, defends itself, but doesn't help the central government. Yeah, and the ISIS also seems to have strong support by former members of the uh, Iraq government. Uh, at yeah. least one of the yeah. generals uh, is known to be a former member of the Iraqi army under uh, Saddam Hussein. And it's yeah. so, so it's also this backlash of the old guards somehow. Oh, yeah. And... Um, yeah, it's very difficult. It's a multi-fronted war. Uh, especially the situation of Kurdistan is always... On the one hand, the Kurds have proven again and again uh, over the time of this conflict for, for many years now, both in Iraq and also in, in Syria, that they're sort of really f focusing on getting out of it as, uh -huh. as, as efficient as possible securing their area, you know, and making the best out of it. They have been yeah. comparably uh, peaceful in a way. Uh, of course, they have their uh, hassles always had with uh, Turkey, but in, yeah. on a general scale, you know, they're not really, um, they're more part of a solution, of a solution that suits them at least, uh, than part of the general problem here. But now they could be drawn into it because this ISIS guys just 
seem to be running wild. Yeah, yeah, and they're not far. I mean, if you've taken Mosul, you're you're at the last stop before Kurdistan, yes. or what? What is Kurdistan effectively? So yeah, so this is not going to go away, um, and and we'll see what happens. It's, it's interesting that it creates these unlikely alliances. Uh, but uh, at the same time, it's it's sad, and of course, there are tons of people that are displaced by all this. You know, people who have to escape uh, militants, escape also the military's activities. They're just caught in the middle. You know, mm. more Iraqi deaths and and displacements. So we'll hear more about that in the near future. Uh, let's go to one of these items from South America that you didn't know was going on behind the the World Cup. Um, <laughs> And this one actually goes back to the days where Argentina was a a failing economy and, and all the big economic problems of the late 90s. I mean, a whole collapse, really. Um, and, and you don't hear much about whatever happened to what money was owed and so forth. Well, the articles have been coming out slowly this week that it appears Argentina is likely to default on its uh, debt. Now, it, the, the debt was due, it is due at the end of this month, June 30th. Uh, and it's said that uh, at least 900 million is due. And there's been all this action in actually in courts in the United States, in New York, uh, from, from these different creditors uh, that are owed money. And basically, it's saying that, you know, Argentina has to pay. And Argentina is saying, uh, they can't pay, and they're calling it vulture funds, vultures trying to to you know pick them apart, basically. Uh, I was reading about how much is owed. First of all, this debt was renegotiated in 2005 and 2010, um, and it's said to be between $1.3 and $1.5 billion, U.S. dollars. But I've read other estimates that have it even higher. Have it high. J.P. Morgan Chase says it's $13 billion. Whatever the case... If it is between one point five billion and thirteen billion, it is pretty unreasonable in terms of the possibility of Argentina paying it off, and uh, it looks like they're going to simply not pay. They're trying to switch the jurisdiction uh, instead of doing these cases in New York. They're saying it should be judged in Argentina. Um, <laughs> this apparently changes matters uh, a great deal for the country. Uh, but basically, they're going to default on their debt. And uh, then is a question of what are the ramifications of that. And, and we talk about stuff like that here in Europe when it comes to not paying debt. Well, there we have the, the Argentinian story. Um, we've still got a few days left before June 30th, but it's uh, looking like Argentina can, can not you, going to pay. Uh, can you explain the term defaulting on the debt? Uh, it's, I mean, it's simply not paying on, uh, you know, what, what is due. I mean, uh, they, they renegotiated when they were going to pay. They, they negotiated a very low rate. I think it was like 30 cents on the dollar or something. Um, and defaulting is simply, I mean, it's a bit like declaring bankruptcy or just saying we can't pay, so we won't. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's the failure to pay when you're, when you owe money. So the question, the bigger question here is that I don't have an answer to is what are the the ramifications if you don't pay your debt? I mean, your credit rating uh, internationally can be lowered. I know Argentina was kind of doing better financially. This could bring them much further down again. Uh, So there is your how you're seen in the international community and by banks and so forth. That's probably going to be damaged here. But beyond that, I'm not sure what happens, especially what what, for the average Argentinian, like what happens. um, I mean, banks were already pretty bad. Uh, Now what? You know, now Mm. the worse. 
Uh, the chances of getting a mortgage may be worse, uh, lower. I don't know. Yeah, that's, that's a big question. Like, what, what happens? What are all the side effects of this? Okay. Yeah. So that's one of the big items out of uh, South America. Uh, we'll come back to South America. I want to bounce around. Another item on the list uh, comes from Pakistan, in fact, and you, you uh, l- were foreshadowing some of this when you were talking about failed states or struggling states. The Pakistani army has begun an offensive in Waziristan, and that's that huge ungoverned area along the border with Afghanistan. Uh, and this is, of course, leading to tens of thousands of people um, becoming displaced, uh, becoming refugees in their own country. And uh, it's said that so far, you know, the army says 160 militants have already been killed as they're doing these airstrikes um, in this region. Of course, there's no independent media access to this region. So you kind of either take the army on its word or you don't. Uh, but that's th- this is the hard part of getting information on this conflict, maybe one of the most underreported conflicts in the world. Um, we're talking about a region of the world with about 7 million people, uh, and they're saying, you know, only 20% of that population have, have fled the conflict area, so there's still a lot of people uh, living right in the, in the kill zone. And this, in Pakistan, where they're still struggling to deal with refugees from the last time the army had an offensive, which I think was back in 2008, um, and also you had the flooding. I mean, the country has no shortage of people who have been forced to leave their homes that are living in refugee camps or need refugee camps. Now here they are again, they're going to need more refugee camps and they're not necessarily building them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this is another one of these, you know, it's, it's not Iraq, but it, it is a situation where we all know that that central government doesn't control the whole country. And every now and then they try to prove that they could or they may, and they, they try to flex their muscle using the military to get control of these uh, otherwise ungoverned areas where we know a lot of uh, militant groups uh, operate out of, uh, including ones that, that, of course, operate in Afghanistan. So this is, it seems like something that happens all the time, but it's actually been a while, uh, but here we have it going on again, Pakistani army taking an offensive action in their own country. Yeah, and then a related note without making it a separate topic here. Uh, just today we had the release, uh, it's World Refugee Day and the UNHCR, the UN Refugee uh, Agency has um, given out a report that now, these days, uh, they're uh, counting 50 million refugees worldwide, which is the first time in post-World War II era that there are so many people on the run. So uh, conflicts like these are fueling this number significantly. Um, Syria does. Um, So it's, uh, unfortunately, it's, it's more than just happening here and there. It's, it's a general trend and um, yeah, it's, it's an amazing number. We, we, Sometimes it's it's said, you know, oh, we have wars are not as prevalent as they used to be. Some people try to argue that, um, you know, there, there's more international cooperation, sure, here and there. But when we look at it, even even here on this program, the amount of conflicts we've discussed where people are pushed from where they live to escape, you know, escaping war, 
they're numerous. I mean, West Africa, <clears throat> Central Africa, um, this whole region of the, uh, the Iraq, Syria, and, and now also now Pakistan and Afghanistan. These are these are just some of the places where people are constantly now being pushed and moved in, uh, across borders or at least uh, to different regions. So yeah, it's uh, it's pretty shocking and pretty sad actually. Fifty million people. Um, things are not necessarily getting better, not in the terms of refugees in this world. Talking about displaced people and <laughs> refugees in this world, there is a very very famous one that has this uh, second anniversary at the yes. place where he uh, yeah, is forced to be. We're talking about no other than Julian Assange, the leader yeah. of WikiLeaks, the public face of this uh, project that's still trapped in London in the uh, embassy of Ecuador without any, yeah, I don't know, any hope. Maybe maybe <laughs> there's hope, I don't know, but at least there's no path leading out of this uh, without him being taken by the UK forces. And whatever, well, happened in the last two years, it hasn't really helped much. Uh, yeah, it's his, it's his two-year birthday. He had a tiny cake. Uh, a couple of media outlets covered the fact that it was two hours. Um, there was a press conference, I think, at the uh, the embassy. And, you know, Ecuador reiterated its support for Julian Assange, saying, you know, they're going to be back him as long as uh, it takes. Uh, which, by the way, makes me wonder. Um, I don't have it in front of me, but, you know, you have the president there, Rafael Correa, I think it helps that he's in power uh, policy-wise. And I wonder what happens if there's an election. I'm sure within the next four years there's an election. Um, what happens if there's any kind of political shift in Ecuador? Does that affect what, what policy they have? Normally it does. I mean, you know, even how your embassies function can be impacted. So that's, that's one thing I'm wondering about. But yeah, the, a lot of the articles have been showing uh Assange's life in the embassy uh Deutsche Welle is the the source I'm linking to for this article where they you know they talk about how it's it's a bit of a prison the life that he's leading except that there's an internet connection and there's a shower and and it's okay it's not prison but it is uh, a very cramped limited uh situation to live in and uh, the article also goes into a bit on how Ecuador what they're doing by housing him is uh, not exactly what every other country would do in terms of policies for, for um, it's not even considered asylum. What is it? Well, it, it, yeah, diplomatic asylum. Yes, um, that's it. Uh, apparently, internationally, only Ecuador and a few other countries, all in Latin America, apparently, recognize this, this type of asylum as, as you know, an option. Um, and I guess that's something we know because, well, he didn't, He didn't choose a European <laughs> embassy, for example. Uh, he, he obviously knew something about international law. But it's interesting that there are exceptions in this world of this fledgling world of international law that just barely exists. Um, <laughs> yeah, well, but yeah, so he's, he's in, still got it. In terms of the support by uh, Rafael Correa, um, well, it doesn't really have uh, much to fear because the re-election of Korea was actually last year. So oh, well uh, the done. first uh, step is taken and the next elections are going to be, well, if it's uh, all going the regular way, uh, in 2017. Wow. So there's enough time. Uh, enough room at least to you know make his five-year anniversary 
Uh, yeah. I just wonder if the embassy ever wants uh, the room back. You know? <laughs> it's, yes, it's not that. It's, I, 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 I've never been there, <laughs> but no. I assume they could, you know, use more space somehow. I, I, I don't know if this is right, but I read that it was. It used to be a women's bathroom. Oh, really? I don't, know if that could be, I don't know if that's right. Maybe that's just the part where his shower is or something. Well, yeah, that would be, well, I'm not going to comment on this. Oh, I see. What, I didn't even realize where I was going there. All right. Well, whatever he's living in, there he is, two-year anniversary. It's, yeah. really, it's a unique story in this world. Um, let's go to another anniversary. Well, not an anniversary, but a unique story in this world and rather sad. Um, this was actually sparked by, I'm a regular watcher of uh, Vice, the H, which is now an HBO news series, yes. and Vice always has usually two stories to their to their episodes, maybe three: one international, one U.S. related or Canada. Um, this last week or two weeks ago, they had an item on Fukushima, uh, where their reporter uh, Vikram Gandhi goes to Fukushima to the actual um, area of the plant, uh, got permission. The, even a government official who wanted to go with him to show him that things are not that bad. Um, interestingly, you know, as you've seen, probably many people have seen videos of people going into the Fukushima uh, prefecture to the old uh, houses where people lived. And they're usually wearing, you know, the suit, the, the, the anti-radiation suit, and they've got a Geiger counter. So Vikram himself has all this stuff. But he's going with a government official that refuses to wear anything to sort of show, like, I'm not afraid. Um, and, you know, in the actual item, when they approach the, the plant, a bunch of uh, TEPCO workers come out in full anti-radiation suits and tell them to get out quickly and are very threatening, like, it's not safe. And he asks the government official, why are they dressed like that and so panicky if you're a government official? And he, he just says, like, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> but... What's amazing in this um, in this oh. item is that they get into what's still being well. First of all, what's still happening, uh, which is of course the continued attempt to cool uh, using more and more water being pumped in um, to cool. What is it? The reactor core. My terms aren't very good, but yes. um, and that so there's there's so much radioactive water every day that is being used and then has to be. Uh, put somewhere yes so the images are amazing they're building uh basically water storage unit after water storage unit it looks like a small city of just these uh silos holding water radioactive water because they don't know what to do with them and at least they know that fukushima is of course uh um, a disaster area no one's going to live there so they just keep putting more and more of these radioactive water containers and it turns out many are leaking so then they're trying to figure out what to do about these leaky water containers. And if they're not leaking now, uh, one thing that the, the vice team points out is that a lot of their uh, materials that they're using aren't very high quality or they won't last over time. So if it's not leaking now, it could be leaking soon. Uh, but they show several that are leaking. And it's this whole question of what, you know, what are you going to do? I mean, you have a never-ending supply of radioactive water uh, that you're not going to be able to touch you know, for thousands of years. Um, so you just keep storing them. I mean, there's going to be a city of, of water silos, basically. Radioactive, of course. Uh, it's an interesting item. Uh, I'm sure we've all heard bits and pieces of this story, um, but it was interesting for me to see it in video. 
um, so much of my news is is read or listened to, but Vice still gives me this this visual that that I don't know makes me think of things that I hadn't thought about, and one of those things is is what's happening in Fukushima still today. Yeah, and and the Japanese government doesn't really give us the impression that they are dealing with the problem uh, properly. You know, they're still giving the impression that they're trying to hide the problems and, and, and make everybody believe it's fine while there's still a huge area in Japan that's, you know, impossible to live in. And uh, this contents, constant leakage of uh, uh, water, I mean, it's not only leaking on the ground, it's it's, uh, it's getting into the ground, it's sort of leaving yeah. the area, uh, it's also flowing into the ocean. So basically it's just constantly flowing into the pacific ocean and spreading uh, all over the world i mean you could say like okay yeah maybe spreading it all over the world is the best that could happen but <laughs> no well <laughs> not really yeah. um this is uh this is a disaster uh to come and um i don't huh. really know what to uh think about it i don't don't really know what to think about the japanese society that somehow Well, still doesn't oppose the uh, nuclear technology that's re uh, about to support reinstalling these nuclear facilities, and you know, there's no real protest culture yeah. in, uh, in in Japan too. Yeah, it's it's a bit like they they shut them down, of course, after the the disaster, and and, and you could say, oh, it's for safety reasons, but it was also just to wait long enough for people to forget or at least not care as much as they did on those days. Uh, and apparently, what, it was two years, <laughs> three years, and then it was like, all right, it's a good time to turn them back on. We're all fine. Um, in this Vice piece, they also go to schools around the Fukushima region that are still open to the public, and there are these organizations that have come to test uh, health-wise uh, people's things like thyroid, or they're just checking for cancers and all kinds of things. And the organizations tell Vice that they've been encouraged or pushed by the government to show that everything is fine. That what they're doing there in these schools is basically, in the eyes of the government, just there to tell everybody you're going to be fine. But what they also say is <laughs> people are not fine. You know, there are a lot of signs of um, mutation or uh, radioactive uh, radiation poisoning. And then they show you, I mean, it's the little things, you know, that the Japanese government does. They have these big uh, radiation detectors, like on the street. Mm -hmm. in these towns and you know a bit like we have for for speeding when we're on the street like you are going this fast and it's it's known that the government has set them calibrated them lower so they get lower readings of radiation uh. so even the so-called you know keep an eye out to see how we're doing today how's the radiation there's already they're already tuned down which leads me to actually the importance of a project uh that's been going on for a lot of years led by a mutual friend of ours sean bonner which is SafeCast, which is basically to build these Geiger counters. You know, people can do it themselves. And a whole network of people with their own Geiger counters doing their regular uh, readings and sharing them online. Because basically you can't trust the government's readings because the government is busy trying to make a nice story. So you do it uh, in true hacker style. We do it ourselves. Uh, so that's uh, the SafeCast network. If anyone's interested, they're still going strong and uh, it's, a, it's a great initiative. Yeah, we'll see what uh, happens next. Yeah. Hopefully it's not too bad. Yeah, it's it's just hard. You know, it's not one of these stories where you're going to go, 
okay, it's now better because this is just the slow poisoning that is going to take place for, I don't know, what, hundreds of years? Hundreds of years. Because it's not. Yeah. Uh, Here is a little item to to round off our list. Uh, I saw it here and there on the on the lower tiny paragraph news stories. The G seventy seven, not as famous as the G eight, or maybe it's the G seven now that Russia's out. I don't know, but uh, the G seventy seven met in Bolivia. Yes, another South America story uh, during the World Cup, and you know it's it's fifty years old. This is like the largest group of nations, at least within the United Nations, uh, that still has meetings. They used to be the more rebellious group, the alternative. Um, and uh, they had their meeting. The, the, a lot of the bigwigs of the United Nations, including Ban Ki-moon and the head of the General Assembly, were there. Um, a lot of, you know, big plans, nothing too um, dramatic. This whole idea of global sustainable development was discussed, reducing poverty. Um, and there's also a big call for assistance to Haiti uh, because Haiti is struggling with uh, a cholera epidemic. And uh, interestingly, among all the little reports from the the G77 meeting, I noticed that uh, Cuba was there and they were reporting that they're very close to a um, basically an announcement uh, regarding the peace negotiations that they're hosting with Colombia and the the FARC. Mm -hmm. Um, And at least according to Cuba, uh, there will be some kind of announcement uh, this year. They think that this is going to be the year that the conflict ends. This is one of the bigger announcements from the G77 meeting. I just thought that's interesting, and it's interesting that the G77 still exists, still going quietly. I mean, it's just a meeting, so there's no reason to get overly excited. Uh, but it's yeah, interesting. And it's also uh, worth noting that the G77, whose official name is the Group of 77, is actually made of 130 or 133 members, depending on which Wikipedia you like to believe. <laughs> uh, I okay. see there are different numbers in different language variations of Wikipedia. Maybe they're not that sure, or you know, it's one of those states who pop up occasionally i don't know <laughs> yeah yeah but but it's like it's it's way beyond those 77 and it's uh, uh, it's very interesting because the members include most well if not all i think it's all of um uh central america uh plus um they always the add Car- caribbean and 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 south america with a few, uh, very few exceptions, like French Guinea, which is basically part of the EU. Yeah. Uh, most of Africa, most of the uh, Arab world, uh, if not all of them, was well, actually all of them, and China. You know? Yeah. So there's a big player in this still. Um, oh, yeah. uh, and basically excludes the West. Yeah, this, this was traditionally the alternative... And Russia. To, yeah, to, to the Cold War. You know, th- I think this is one of those movements that was supposed to be, okay, we don't choose that side or that side. We're a third way. Yeah. And, uh, and that's why I say it's also still interesting that they get together. Uh, the world doesn't look the way it did back then, but they still go about their business, maybe no longer calling themselves a third way, uh, but still looking at these topics. And many of these nations have come a long way, uh, like China or India is a big member, I think. Um, they've come a long way since since the foundation of the G seventy seven, as you said, m- much yeah. more than. But but it's but it's it's not the so called non aligned movement. Ah, ah. You know, so it's right. not it's not the same. Although I would say they have something like ninety five percent match. 
uh, <laughs> with the G77, but the non-aligned members uh, are also uh, the non-aligned movement also includes Mexico. Okay. Uh, the uh, Ukraine. Uh huh. Uh, some former Yugoslavia states, and uh, I think even white white Russia. <laughs> so yeah, but apart from that, it's basically you know the yeah. same kind of countries. Yeah, I think I did get a countries. little confused with the non-aligned movement there. That's for a uh, very easy to <laughs> confused. Please forgive me. Yes, no problem. Uh, <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> All right. So G77, going strong. Happy birthday, number 50. Uh, and lastly today, since I used them for the article on um, Argentina and sovereign debt, uh, I would recommend, yes, Forbes. Uh, Forbes magazine, no, not the best publication in the world, but when it comes to financial news, uh, they gave you more detail than most uh, quick Associated Press articles. So I'm going to recommend Forbes, uh, Forbes.com. Especially on the Argentina story, you'll get lots of additional information. It's a fancy pants, privately owned magazine. Nothing too too much to be, to be proud of, but you know, <laughs> it's out there. We, we accept all sorts of sources, not always the best ones. It's Forbes. I mean, it's not, you know, it's not a bunch of cat videos or anything like that. <laughs> uh, so there you have it. Another source to add to the uh, database that is news sources. And that will do it for this week, Tim. Uh, yes, it will. Yeah. Uh, hopefully we'll be back with you next week. I don't see any big trips coming up yet for me. Uh, yourself? Well, there's still the World Cup, you know. Oh, oh I can't go anywhere until that's over. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, taking my time, but I really enjoy it. You know. Oh, I didn't. Oh, I didn't know you really enjoy. Okay. All right. Oh, I well, do because I. I think you know it's the happiness thing. Uh, I don't want really want to put too much into it, but okay. I really like the idea of the world, probably excluding the U.S. Uh, you know, coming together for a uh, peaceful competition on something that you know basically everybody can agree on that they like it. And yeah. uh, football is somehow the sport that sort of joins everybody, regardless of, you know, races and countries and ethnics and, and, and religion. It doesn't, doesn't really matter. It's like this simple game, yeah. uh, playing the ball and trying to put it into this box, you know, yeah. makes everybody uh, so excited and, and, and happy <laughs> and, and, and sad also, <laughs> depending on the results. And... Yeah. Uh, and I like the idea that, that, that people, you know, spend their time thinking about playing with the ball instead of <laughs> thinking playing about with a gun. killing, yeah, killing everybody. True, true, and, true. And, um, and I, I, I like that and I support that and I see it in a very positive light that way. Although <laughs> FIFA, you know, as yeah. an organization is also uh, ripe for uh, some kind of deeper look at here at the News yeah. of the World. Yeah. Uh, the time is going to come, um, yeah. but that's a totally different issue. I also, I, I would say something I do like about the World Cup when we talk about the U.S. Um, is that they're finally in a situation where they're not big shots. Uh, they're just this little team that is unlikely to go far. I kind of like the U.S. in the World Cup because they're they're forced to work with less than than you know the best yeah they were forced to work with the german 
And, uh, <laughs> that's right. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Who's running the team? Yeah. And also, uh, but you know, it would be easy just to say that there are, oh, they're not the big shots here. Yeah. But they are. They mean? have to be involved now. You know, even them, uh, even they, they have to sort of take part in it or or want to to be a yeah. part. Of it. They they uh, they have it finally matters. noticed that there are things that are. That matter to the world that's outside of the default scope of a US American. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And sure. that's also very interesting. So somehow mm. I wish they sort of become successful, probably win a few more games, because <laughs> this would mean uh, that the, the sport itself would be more interesting to the US, you know? Yeah, yeah. Sort yeah. of opening up a new uh, path yeah. to, you know. Uh, develop some kind of compatible culture to the rest of the world. Sure. Maybe sure. that's just too much I put into this, <laughs> but you know, that's how I see it. I think it's a great game and you know, there they you should be it. a part of it. By the way, one of my most favorite World Cup memories is uh, you took me to Stadtbad Mitte uh, oh, yeah. in, in Berlin and Ten, we watched in, in the pool. <laughs> yeah, the pool with cool. no water. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was good. Well, and, yeah. and and yesterday I was sitting in a, in a football stadium that what? was completely filled with sofas, you know. Oh. So it, <laughs> it's a stadium by Union Berlin, and this whole area was you know, people just brought their own sofas and placed them there, and now you can just walk in for free into that stadium, have a sit on a sofa, and for six hours watch World Cup under wow. the sun. It's so great. great. It's like the best place wow. <laughs> I've ever seen a game in public. It's totally worth it. Wow. <laughs> All right, people, that, that, you know. That's going to be the default standard in, in, in yeah. the next uh, competition, for sure. Yeah, yeah. All right, we all know where we have to go now to watch yes. these games. Forget, <laughs> forget wherever you are. Let's go to Berlin. Okay. All that's right. It. We'll Goodbye. catch you soon. Bye.